Welcome to Tech on Reg, the podcast that explores all things at the intersection of law, technology, and high regulated industry. We're talking fintech, regtech, sextech, and more with thought leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world to share insights, trade viewpoints, and get us all thinking about responsible innovation. And here is your host, Dara Tukowski. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tech on Reg. I am your host, Dara Tarkowski, and we are here with a brand new episode of the podcast that explores all things at the intersection of law, technology, and highly regulated industry. Today, we have Benny Gradwall, CEO and co-founder of Cognovi Labs, to discuss AI and emotional decision-making. That's right, folks. We're talking about robots with feelings, and that's what Benny is here to teach us all about. But before we do, I have to take a moment to thank our sponsor for today's episode, BAI. For those of you that are unfamiliar with BAI, they are the leader uh, in teaching and training and compliance education for the financial services world. Um, And they even have a few courses that touch on some of the subject matters that we're going to be doing here today. So thank you, BAI, for all of your support. Without further ado, Benny, welcome to the show. Welcome to Tech on Reg. Hey, Dara. It's great to be here, and uh, thank you very much for uh, inviting me to your show. Absolutely. So just, audience, to set the stage, I know we've done a lot of episodes about AI, um, the ethics of AI, voice-powered AI. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different, and we're going to be exploring artificial intelligence from an emotional angle, from a psychological angle, and talking with Benny, our expert here today, about what advancements are being made what Cognovi is doing that's so different and unique from some other AI companies in the space. So I thought it would be good to sort of set the stage with some, a quote from some very smart people over at MIT. And MIT's Sloan School of Business posed the question in an article up on their website that says, what did you think of the last commercial you watched? Was it funny? Was it confusing? Would you buy the product? You might not remember how you felt, but increasingly, machines do. And there are new artificial intelligence technologies that are learning to recognize human emotions, using knowledge to improve everything from marketing campaigns to healthcare. And these are the technologies that are referred to as emotion AI, which is a subset of artificial intelligence that measures, understands, simulates, and reacts to humans' emotions. It's also known as effective computing or artificial emotional intelligence. Benny, did MIT get it right? Is that, is that sort of a fair definition? Yeah. Or would you like to edit something that the fine folks at MIT wrote down? No, I think they captured the, uh, the technical and uh, um, you know, description of what emotion AI is. It's really using machine learning to replicate what we do as human beings day in, day out, which is understand people's emotions, correct? Uh, We know that, or at least 50 years of research in psychology and neurology and behavioral sciences have shown that we as human beings are not as rational as we think we are. In fact, the vast majority of decisions we make are made by the subconscious mind based on emotions. Well, trust me, as a lawyer, I know that people are not as rational. Like I know firsthand that people are not as rational as they think they are. I get to deal with that every day. (laughs) And I'm glad you recognize that because very often people tell me, oh, yeah, 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 that's true on the commercial, on the consumer side, but not in the business setting. And that's absolutely not the case. Not the case. And so I I wasn't aware that, I I was aware that lawyers are emotional as well, as we know. 
I mean, people like to think that we're unfeeling, unhuman, but we are. We have lots. We have lots of feelings. The whole, the whole, the whole range. We get angry. We get sad. We get real happy when we when we do good things for our clients. Okay, so if if we're in agreement, MIT got the definition right. Tell me a little bit about how you came to the wonderful world of emotion AI. I came to it through I don't know seventy one different uh, corners and 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 <laughs> So I'm not. Um, I didn't grow up with AI. That wasn't anything when I grew up. I'm not a psychologist. So given the fact that we're in emotion AI and bringing in psychology, I'm not a psychologist. I'm actually a trained astrophysicist. And I spent a few years in academia and switched into finance, like you know, a lot of my colleagues uh, during that time did. So I spent 20 years in, in finance on the investment side and uh, at Morgan Stanley Institutional Securities. And then during the financial crisis, at City overseeing the mortgage portfolio. I had the fortune that um, I was sent to take a class at Harvard in the late 90s in behavioral economics and behavioral finance. And I was not early in, the, in academia understanding what behavioral economics and cognitive biases are, but it was relatively new in the business world. And I came from this quantitative world where everything had to do with data, hard data. And I took this class and it was an eye opener. And I said, oh, my gosh, the world doesn't revolve around hard data. It's actually around how people make decisions. And that was the beginning of a 20-plus year kind of uh, journey, which brought me to Cognovi Labs. And, and, and it's interesting. Initially, there was no technology. There was no way for me to apply that. So I found a way to apply it in my investment process, and it worked like a charm, uh, just pure luck. But then later on, when I came to City, and I have to say, I, I came to City to join a new um, senior management team on the mortgage side. I came from Morgan Stanley in 2008. I wasn't responsible for the crash for the housing. But we, we, I, we you heard it here, folks, guys. Don't blame Benny. <laughs> but we came in to help stabilize the bank and stabilize uh, the mortgage portfolio. And so I, overnight, I was responsible for that $285 billion mortgage portfolio. And how do you how do you handle something like that? Well, you can't sell it. Nobody's going to buy toxic assets. So you have to work with the homeowner. Well, how do you convince a homeowner to modify a loan, go through a certain procedure? Well, it's negotiation. In other words, you have to understand human behavior. Yes. So I went to my boss, who was the CEO at uh, City Mortgage, and asked, where can I find at City the chief psychology officer to help me understand how to negotiate? And the answer was, there isn't any. <laughs> so here we were, <laughs> millions of clients, no idea how to negotiate with the end client. Now, eventually, we were, you know, with all the work we've done, we were able to keep a million and a half American homeowners in their home. So we did something right. But I always felt there is a need to systematically understand how we make decisions so we can actually help society in a better way. I was going to say, is that what is happening at Cognovi Labs? I would love to know what Cognovi is doing, what their mission is. And, you know, given everything that you just said, is are, are we going to be seeing chief psychology officers at all of these financial institutions now who are going to be implementing your technology? Well, we are a technology company which has a chief psychology officer as part of the core team. Okay. I don't think you're going to find a lot of those uh, leading edge tech companies with that kind of setup, because I think 
in, in order to understand human behavior, it's not just enough to use deep machine learning. You also have to understand the human psyche. Now, before I go into the mission statement and what we actually do, um, you know, this whole concept of emotions is very scary. Forget about AI. It's scary to begin with, correct? If you go back 10, 20, 30, 50 years, it was taboo. Nobody talked about emotions. Sure. I mean, we're not, we're not supposed to talk about our, I mean, people feel uncomfortable talking about their feelings, sharing their feelings. Some people can't even admit their feelings to themselves, right? Some people exactly. don't even, in, you know, the entire, the entire, uh, you know, industry of psychology, psychiatry, self-help, self-awareness. It, it was so funny. It came into such sharp focus during the pandemic because so many people were struggling so much for so many different reasons, you know, in, in the wake of COVID, feeling isolated, scared, sick. Everything was in flux. Our lives were changing. Our jobs were changing. The way we communicated, interacted was changing. And I think it finally forced everyone to be like, we're all about to lose it. We have to talk about our mental health, our psychology, and how we, how we adjust and how we continue on. And at least from my perspective, it came into such sharp focus in 2020 and 2021. And now I do think a lot of organizations are understanding their people a little bit better. And I think they want to do right by their customers, by their employees, because everyone is sort of in the same boat, struggling with the same things. And maybe maybe what is happening at Cognovi is going to help organizations be able to, you know, make a dif make a difference with the new information that we have now. Laura, I couldn't agree more with everything you just said. And so Oh my god, I love it when that happens. <laughs> I love it. I disagree as well, but in this case I fully agree and and what's so ex um, fascinating is when people talk about emotion and say, "Oh my gosh." They say, oh my gosh, not just about AI. They say also, oh my gosh, about the emotion component because emotions are scary as we just talked about. But they are core to who we are as human beings. And, and so we know today that emotional wellness is part of overall wellness, health wellness, physical wellness, correct? So we have to understand our emotions. We have to regulate our emotion. We have to manage emotions. But that's from a personal point of view. But from a business point of view, we also know that if you want to be successful as a person in your career, IQ is important. But what's more important is EQ, emotional intelligence. Why? Because you have to understand your own emotions. You have to understand social cues and emotional cues of the other person, and you have to manage that. Now, if that's the case, if emotions are really core to how we interact, how we make decisions, so 90% of decisions are made by the subconscious mind based on emotions. Well, if that's the case, we have to understand emotions. The problem is we as human beings are not as good in understanding emotions. So some of us are physically incapable of doing it because of handicaps or they're on the spectrum. So physically they don't understand. But even people who are emotionally intelligent, they don't fully understand emotions. So if we take three of us and we read um, an article and we have to decide whether that person was angry or happy or sad or fearful, two out of three will agree around 80% of the time. If you ask all three to agree, it's only 60% of the time. So we even can't agree what emotions are reflect. So 
if it's important, let's measure it and let's just measure it in a way that we then can also create a value to improve our emotional intelligence society. And that has direct implication on our welfare, not just in terms of dollars and cents, but in terms of health. And that's where Kokonobi plays. Okay. So I am a lawyer by training. I try cases. I depose people. I question witnesses. I end up reading thousands and thousands of pages of documents that have been previously written, correspondence from people one way or the other. And I have to pick juries. Right. I have to I have to I have to pick juries. I have to communicate with them. I've got to communicate to a judge. Talk to me about what exactly Cognovi is doing from a business perspective, because I because I if I recall correctly, I think your organization is really just focused on writing and the written word. And we're not really, at least for now, not really talking about, you know, facial recognition or voice or anything like that. I think we're all good at telling when people are angry when they yell or sad when we when we hear them speak, but it's a lot harder to read that. As you said, like if you read an article, it's a lot harder necessarily to get everyone to agree on like what was their tone, what was their mood when something was written. Um, so talk to me a little bit about how you guys are doing that. Yeah, so to your point, Dara, you're absolutely right. You can extract emotions with the visual. You can extract emotions through audio if somebody shouts or slows down or, or pauses. And you can do it through sensors, you know, heart rates and, and whether people are sweating. And, and so there are different ways of doing it. Uh, and then through the conversation, the text. And text, when I say text, it could be written text like social media, discussion forums. It could be emails. But it could also be transcriptions from phone calls. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, so everything, by the way, we do has either is highly only publicly available information or it's data which we receive from clients where we get the data completely anonymized. So we can talk about that later, but we take textual data. We analyze our technology has several layers of IP or capabilities. The first one is to really understand at scale what people talk about it. Who's talking, what they're talking about, what are the topics? Is it about buying Nike sneakers or is it about politics or is it about war in, in, in Ukraine? What, what is it? The second part is we, we extract the underlying emotional undertone, not sentiment analysis. Emotions, and we can talk about the difference between that. Sentiment analysis is positive, negative, and that's really where the industry came from. Are people nicely talking about you or not? Thumbs up, thumbs down. This is more how civilized, a reflection of civilized we talk, but it's not a reflection what we're going to do next. Because if you go to a restaurant and you sit down for dinner and the waiter comes five minutes after you get dinner and asks, hey, Dara, everything okay? You're probably going to say, yeah. You're going to give a positive sentiment, even if food came late, doesn't look appealing, you'll never go back to the restaurant. So right. sentiment analysis, and the hedge fund industry has found that out several years ago. That's why they moved away from sentiment analysis, because it doesn't really tell you much. What we do is we extract really the human emotions. We extract 10 emotions. Now, why 10? We extract what's called the Paul Ekman emotion. Those are six. Paul Ekman is a psychologist who in 1971, 72 said that Joy, anger, disgust, fear, sadness, surprise are key primary emotions which drive decisions. And then we added amusement, contempt, hope, and trust. So we take those 10. The first thing we do is try to be as good, have our machine be as good as a good human being in measuring emotions. Now, that's a tall order. <laughs> but I already told you what that order is, correct? 80% when two people look at it, 
need to agree. So I want to get to the same level. And I want to do it in a way that is true for every emotion in every language, which means I cannot use translation because emotions get lost in translation. So I have to train a machine learning, an AI system in every language natively without translations. And that's what we do. So our technology is trained already on 20 plus languages natively. And when we look at the position recalls and all that good stuff where we, where we measure our technology, we find out, indeed, we are at the level of a good human being. Now, that's just the starting point of what we do. Because what does it mean if a text or a tweet or a conversation is all happy or all joyful or all trustworthy? We need to understand what that means because we don't, we don't behave just on joy and hope. We also no. have anger. We have fear of missing out. We have some disgust, and so we move away and we buy something else or do something else. We are a whole portfolio, a whole mixture of emotions which drive the decision. Now, how do they do that? Well, 50 years of research has tried to figure that out. And there yeah. are ways of thinking about it. And they're, they're under things like appraisal theory or action tendencies or whole concepts but it has never been quantified. And so we came in and said, you know what? The fact that it hasn't been done doesn't mean we can't do it. And so we quantified how emotions drive, in our case, the tendency to act, the impulse to act in certain ways. Are people even acting? If there are no emotions, they're not going to do anything. Right. If there are emotions, maybe they are withdrawing and pulling back. Maybe they are highly emotional and just observing. Maybe they're chasing after you. I imagine the outputs of what you do are going to be highly dependent on the client that you're working with, the type of data they're providing to you. And so do companies come to you and say, okay, I have to figure out, I have an existing customer base and we have a ton of complaints and I have to figure out what we're doing wrong. Or is it all about sales? Or is it a little bit of everything? I'm just, I'm just sort of curious. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It, it depends. Uh, and so some clients come to us and say, hey, just take social media, discussion forums, blogs, publicly available information. Others tell us, no, we have surveys or can you help us create surveys where we get rich information to really understand why somebody behaves the way they do. So let me give you an example. That'd be great. Um, similar to lawyers, we always think that Doctors are completely rational. There's research out there which shows that even in clinical decisions, doctors are highly emotional. Not our research, research which has been publicly, you know, academically, uh, uh, you know, published in academia. Um, so we have a client, or we have different clients, and um, one of them came to us and said, we have this phenomenal drug for a specific disease in a specific stage, which is the only drug which actually works. And despite that, there are too many doctors who do not prescribe it. So we created our own AI, they said, and we were able to segment our doctors into the ones which always prescribe, sometimes prescribe, they call it the trialist, and then the ones who never prescribe from high propensity to low propensity. They have different ways of segmenting. And it works to some extent, but it doesn't work perfectly. And they still couldn't figure out why some doctors in a certain stage should give the, the, the medication to their patients, but didn't. So they came to us and said, we need to figure out what the emotional blockers are, the emotional drivers, because there are clearly no rational reasons 
not to give that medication. It's not related to cost or reimbursement. It's not related to side effects. There's something else happening. And so we created a special survey. We call it diagnostic interviews, which is, it looks like a survey, which they call, they called 50 of their uh, doctors, HCPs. But we created the questionnaires, 10 questionnaires, which were set to talk about the issues at hand in a way that it generates a strong uh, and rich emotional response. And we took that data, ran it through our technology, and pop, it showed what the emotional blockers and drivers are. And so here we were, coming with the data, a few days after they gave us that, uh, the results from the, from the surveys, and we came back to them. And by the way, we're not medical doctors, although I have a medical doctor on my team. Um, but we came to them, and our chief psychology officers were making the analysis and say, look, here's how we see your doctors and what happens. And she identified the emotional blockers which keep some of them from prescribing. The client looked at us and said, we have known for 10 years as an issue. We never could put our fingers on it. You come in within a few days, and you essentially give us the whole rundown, which makes perfect sense. But what it means is now they know what the blockers are. So their sales force can go back in and say, this is the reason. And now let's talk about the issues. What's the pink elephant in the room? So we can change behavior for the better of the patient. I, I mean, I think that's a really sort of fascinating case study. And it's good to know that the cynic in me wanted to say that, well, you know, their blocker is going to be that they're getting reimbursed from a different company if we're prescribing a different drug. But that is the cynic in me and has very little to do um, with, with emotional AI. Um, but so can we talk about maybe some potential other use cases? Be, so like we just talked about, you know, healthcare pharma that makes complete sense. There are a lot of other sort of, right, I'm, I'm thinking about stuff like customer service and call centers or, you know, maybe... Uh, Maybe there is something um, that can be benefited from a mental health standpoint. I, I would always be fascinated to know that, like, if I looked at every email that I've written to people and, like, all of the different relationships in our lives, and you look at all of this writing over a period of time, I'm wondering, you know, what sorts, what sorts of things that we can learn about ourselves, right? Have you ever thought about any sort of, like, consumer-level applications of what you're doing? Yeah, so first of all, we, we work with, you know, consumer companies. Um, what you're talking about is more a consumer-facing application. And here, obviously, you have privacy issues. Uh, so if you w in order to do it, you would have the, the client or the consumer, you know, opt-in, obviously. Yeah, to be able consent, to consent is the name of the game. <laughs> and so there are ways to secure that. We haven't, uh, we are actually working towards uh, an opportunity which has related relationship to mental health, um, which is incredibly important. And, you know, suicidality has gone up. As you know, with the uh, you know, pandemic, anxiety is at an all-time high. Um, there are a lot of things and, and implications of that in terms of crime. So us better understanding mental health and getting our our help is incredibly important. So, but there are privacy issues which we need to be very careful and security issues. Um, now, again, we are, um, all our technology, when it works, it looks at the emotional components, but it's completely anonymized and we want to keep right. it that way. Um, but it can absolutely do good. Um, I, there's another health related 
uh, other use case, which shows you that it's not about just the the PNL, the the dollars, uh, you know, uh, or the revenue growth for companies. And I'll give you an example, which is um, not from doctor's perspective, but from a from patient's perspective. Uh, it has to do with what's called low um, adherence to medication. It turns out that people who have chronic diseases go to the doctor to get uh, a diagnosis. So they go through all the tests and then they get a prescription. What happens now? You got to take it. You have to take it. The problem is six out of 10 never fill that prescription to begin with. And the four who do uh, uh, take the prescription uh, and fill the prescription, take the medication, two of them, so 50%, drop out within six months. Now, you can say, well, who cares, correct? The pharmaceutical company are going to make less money. But there is a a general problem in in thinking about it that way. It turns out that 125,000 American lives are lost every year because of a lack of adherence. People do not take the medication and die from it. So for us helping those pharmaceutical companies to understand what are the emotional drivers and blockers for the patients saves lives, not just dollars, it saves lives. And what we do is we look at, in this case, we actually can look at social media, self-reported, self-identified patient groups, and understand and identify what the, not just the topics are they talk about, but what the emotional profiles are. And they are day and night. There is a difference in emotional profiles when they talk about the medication and the disease, when they take or not take the medication. And so a pharmaceutical company can either work with the doctors to have a different approach to the doctors or have a different marketing campaign or positioning of their, of their drugs in order to increase adherence and save lives. It's interesting because you know the patient cares, right? They cared enough to pick up the phone, make an appointment with their physician, go to the doctor, sit for the tests, provide their insurance information. And that's that's time consuming. That's there's there's emotion involved in just going to the doctor and trying to figure out, you know, your your current state of health. And then you go through all of that effort and then you finally get to the end to being like, Meh. I'm not I'm not gonna take this one to Walgreens. So yeah, I mean, like sort of the emotional component about what changes a human's behavior, because there was clearly one mindset all up until that point. And then what changed in, you know, do they not, tr- do they not trust the doctors anymore? Is it a financial issue? Like what, what is it that, that changed? Because to get someone to go to the doctor to begin with, I think is sort of a, sort of a huge feat. So, you know, why aren't people following through? I think that's a, fin- I think that's a fantastic use case. Yeah, and it shows the the overpowering strength of the subconscious component over the rational. Because all, all those patients, they know they should take the medication, but they don't. Uh, and and so it it really uh, it's a reflection. Now this is just one part, which is we call it the explore part, which yeah. is explore what are the key drivers and blockers of the decision making. And it's not how loud somebody shouts about something. Somebody can be shouting about something and it's completely noise because no emotions there, so no emotions, no decisions. And then sometimes there are, there's a whispering in conversations, but it's highly emotionally impactful and that will change behavior. And you need to understand that. So that's the explore. 
we have a communication component, which is how do you shape behavior? How do you change it to a better outcome? And so let me give you an example. So looking at uh, health organizations, even the CDC, during the pandemic, they had a mission to roll out the, the vaccine, let's say, and convince as many as possible to take the vaccine. So you would think that when they put something out on their website, their communication, it will be with a, in a way that it triggers the emotional, uh, the emotions, the emotional undertone, which will change behavior. Well, the CDC certainly triggered a lot of emotions all across the spectrum with their uh, with their intermittent announcements. It did, but not at the right place. I, I I think I think every myself and every listener to this episode would wholeheartedly agree with that. And so what we're saying is if you put something out and you're trying to have people take the medication, take the vaccine, change behavior for the better, do it in a way that you trigger the kind of emotion which will change that behavior. And that's exactly what our technology can provide you. It can guide you in a way to say that, yes, this will change your behavior. Now, I'm sure there are some skeptics out there who say, well, doesn't that mean you can also misuse the technology? And the answer is yes, every technology, you know, you can misuse a knife or you can use it to butter your bread. Um, So that's why our mission statement is so important to do good. Well, we can't, we can't get, let the politicians get a hold of your technology. All of a sudden we're going to be influencing elections now. Um, You don't even have to respond to that. That was just me making, (laughs) that's just me making a a quasi-snarky comment. No, it's a good point, but I, I do want to <laughs> still like, respond to that. So that's, that's very important because that's why we're staying away from individuals and influencing. It's all in aggregate and anonymized way to understand people's behavior and have a better messaging for the good. So absolutely, um, we're taking, um, we're taking the, the privacy and the, and the ethical and moral issues very, very serious. Well, you know... Um, so many, so many different use cases. To the extent you guys haven't thought about it, if you guys think about a potential use case or application in the legal field, when we're talking about witnesses and juries and judges, I think that would be a completely fascinating area, and frankly, an area that's been the subject of a great deal of study um, in the legal community. Um, you know, and and I do think that it could potentially help with better outcomes for you know. That's that's our primary as Americans, you know, we we're litigious people. It's our primary way of resolving uh, disputes amongst ourselves. Wouldn't there wouldn't it be great if there was a better way to do that instead of uh, lawyers just fighting with one another all the time? Uh, I can I can think about several applications of technology in the legal field, which we haven't we have discussed, but we haven't uh, actually done yet. But, you know, to your point, and you're obviously the uh, the expert here. Um, you know, results and, 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 and the outcomes of legal disputes don't just have to do with just the facts, but also how it's being delivered. They certainly don't. There is, there is a high degree of emotion um, and EQ, and it goes... So we've had studies, do they like the lawyer? Do they like the way the lawyer dressed that day? Does she look like a friendly person? You know, and it was, I always found it fascinating. I'm a mom of three. I've had three kids and I had a very long jury trial 
when I was pregnant with my twin boys. And I was the lawyer up there with my big pregnant belly, you know, with my hand on my stomach and hand on my back. And the jury questionnaire afterwards, like I was their favorite person in the room. And I barely spoke. Like I I was a young lawyer at the time, but I was their favorite person in the room. And they were always concerned that I was on my feet too much. And it was just so funny and fascinating. Um, And whether or not that ultimately helped my client at the end of the day, just because I happened to be like the pregnant lawyer there, you know, with, with a big belly that drew some, you know, sympathy from our jury, you know, it, who's to say, but those types of things in that profession, a multi-billion dollar profession is fascinating. Yeah. And uh, what's also fascinating, and I completely agree, by the way, uh, it's, it's what's the emotional engagement you get? You, you create an emotional engagement, empathy without yeah. it, you know, just where you were. Um, and, and people always say, look, which people have better access to good lawyers. I'm wondering how much of that good, good lawyer is actual factual or if they're better trained from an emotionally intelligent point of view, better actors, better engagers, better negotiators, better, better, negotiators. Better, at reading, better at reading people. I firmly believe that like the best trial lawyers are not the best technical lawyers. They're the best people connectors. They're the best relationship people. They're the best storytellers. Um, but I could, that's a whole other, that's a whole other subject for a whole other episode. <laughs> no, but, but, so let's take that to the next step though, because I think that's absolutely uh, the case. Wouldn't it be important to actually have a score where we say, look, you have to understand this lawyer was emotionally more engaging at the score of seven out of 10, whereas the other one was at the three and take that into account because that doesn't have anything to do with with the actual uh, the actual outcome, correct? Uh, whether somebody is is uh, how somebody is being charged. So I, understanding I emotion, right. understanding emotion, measuring emotions. So we just understand what the impact is on life on its own is incredibly important. I love it. You guys are you guys are actually providing like EQ scores. It, I, I think that that's so interesting. So we're getting close to the end of our end of our time. I can't. I can't believe we're at the end of the episode, but Benny, if there were any sort of, you know, parting ideas or parting thoughts you'd want to leave our listeners with, what would they be? We always think about AI as this scary technology out there. Um, It's not scarier than what people are doing. So in the case of emotion AI, what we're trying to do is essentially augment something we should be doing much better than we are. If we had more emotional intelligence in the world, I think there would be less crime. I think there would be less wars. And so if we can augment that through anything, any technology, any capability, we should do that. Having said that, I'm also very strong in favor that we don't just do it without any regulation and any oversight. And so we have to be very careful because what we're doing is AI is not its own animal, its own beast to do stuff. It's just something which does it better or in a different way to how we've done it for many, many years. And so the, the, the regulation has to change, the oversight has to change, how we think about ethical privacy issues, security issues, morale issues. Um, and, it's, and, and I think those issues are important for all of us. And just as a, as a quick note there, I'm, you know, every, every semester pretty much I, I give a guest lecture at the University of California, UCLA and Irvine and and, and often in Santa Barbara. And it's interesting over the years, it was, it's by the way, it's a class 
around innovation in finance and then being invited to talk about AI. But over time, I took it from the more technical to the more philosophical and moral. And what I've seen is that people are much more engaged today in the philosophical and moral and ethical issues and discussion around AI. And I think this is critically important because at the end of the day, this is it. This is our life and how we use AI, how we regulate AI and how we do it for the better will change how our kids are going to grow up. And so get involved. That's my that's my um, suggestion to everyone on the call, whether you're a tech person or you're a philosopher or you're a lawyer or, or you're a social scientist. You there has a there's a role to be played for you to uh, to shape the future. Well, thank you so much. And if you're ever interested in launching a legal type case study, you know who to call now. Um, I would love to be your, your first legal guinea pig. Um, and you can go ahead and give me my score. Uh, and we'll, we'll, you'll, you'll fully have my consent. Here, listeners, I'm providing Benny my consent right now in front of all of you wonderful people. So really, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing with us what you're doing. I think it's incredibly interesting. I'd love to have you back so we can check in, you know, in a year uh, and see what sort of uh, mountains uh, you're moving. And hopefully uh, we're all learning more about ourselves and you're making the world a better place, which is what, uh, you know, Cognovi set out to do. So thank you again, listeners. Thank you for tuning in. Until next time. Bye. Thank you, Dara. It was a pleasure.